when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. My guest this week is Jamie Hinman, Chief Technology Officer at John Deere, the world's biggest manufacturer of farming machinery. And I think this episode is really going to surprise you. One of our themes here on Decoder is that basically everything is a computer now, and farming equipment like tractors and combines are no different. In fact, Jamie told me that John Deere employs more software engineers than mechanical engineers now, which completely surprised me. But the entire business of farming is moving towards something called precision agriculture, which means farmers are closely tracking where seeds are planted, how well they're growing, what those plants need, and how much they yield in the end. The idea, Jamie says, is to have each plant on a massive commercial farm tended to with individual care a process which requires collecting and analyzing a massive amount of data. If you get it right, precision agriculture means farmers can be way more efficient. They can get better crop yields with less work and lower costs. But as Decoder listeners know by now, turning everything into a computer means that everything has computer problems now. Like all that farming data, who owns it? Where is it processed? How do you get it off the tractors without reliable broadband networks? What format is it in? Is it Excel files? If you want to use your John Deere tractor with another farming analysis vendor, how easy is that? Is it easy enough? And then there's the tractors themselves. Unlike phones or laptops or even cars, tractors get used for decades. How should they get upgraded? How can you keep them secure? And most importantly, who gets to fix them when they break? See, John Deere is one of the companies at the center of a nationwide reckoning over something called right to repair. Right now, tech companies like Samsung and Apple and John Deere all get to determine who can repair their products and what official parts are available. And because these things are all computers, they can also use the software to lock out parts from other suppliers. If you follow the website iFixit, which we are very friendly with here at The Verge, you know they talk about this in the context of phones all the time. But it's a huge deal when it comes to farming equipment, which is still extremely mechanical, often located far away from service providers, 
not so easy to move, and which farmers have been repairing by themselves for decades. In fact, right now the prices of older, pre-computerized tractors are skyrocketing because they're easier to repair. And half the states in the country are now considering right-to-repair laws that would require manufacturers to disable software locks and provide parts to repair shops. And it's all being driven, in a bipartisan way, by the needs of farmers. Actually, let me tell you something. My wife grew up on a farm. Her dad and her cousins are all commercial farmers. They all use John Deere equipment. So I texted them and asked, do you have any questions for Jamie? And the first thing they all replied with was about right-to-repair. This is what they want to know about. I asked Jamie all these questions, and we pushed on right to repair. And we also talked a lot about what it means for our farms to be run by computers. Like I said, I think this episode will really surprise you. Okay, Jamie Hinman, CTO of John Deere. Here we go. Jamie Hinman, you're the Chief Technology Officer at John Deere. Welcome to Decoder. Great to be here. John Deere is famously a tractor company. I think everybody knows the logo. They know the green. You make a lot of equipment for farmers, for construction sites, that sort of thing. Give me the short version of what the Chief Technology Officer at John Deere does all day long. Yeah, it's a, a great question. I'll try to keep it short. So the chief technology officer, my role right now in Eli is, is really to try to set the strategic direction from a technology perspective for the company across both our agricultural products as well as our construction, forestry, and road building products. So it's a cool job. I get to look out, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years into the future and, and try to make sure that we're putting into place the pieces that we need in order to, to have the technology solutions that are going to be important for our customers in the future. When you say technology solutions, I think one of the reasons I w was very excited to have you on Decoder is there's a lot of computer solutions in there. There's a lot of hardware, software services that I think of as sort of traditional computer company problems. Do you also oversee the portfolio of technologies that just make combines more efficient at being combines that make tractor wheels move faster? For sure. We've got, you know, a centrally organized technology stack organization. We call it the Intelligence Solutions Group. And its its job is really to do exactly that. It's to to make sure that we're developing technologies that can scale across the complete organization, across those combines you referenced and the tractors and the sprayers and the construction products, et cetera, uh, and deploy that technology as quickly as possible. I want to start with a really big picture question then. One of the things The Verge wrestles with almost every day is this question of what is a computer? And we wrestle with it in very small and obvious ways. We argue about whether the iPad or an Xbox is a computer. Then you can zoom all the way out. We had Jim Farley, who's a CEO of Ford on Decoder a couple weeks ago, and he and I talked about how Ford's cars are, are effectively rolling computers now. Is that how you see a tractor or a combine or construction equipment, that they, these are gigantic computers that have big mechanical functions as well? They absolutely are. I mean, that's what they've become over time is, you know, I would call them mobile sensor suites that have computational capability, not only on board, but to your point, off board as well. So they're continuously, you know, streaming data from whatever it is, let's say the tractor and the planter uh, to the cloud. We're doing computational work on that data in the cloud and then serving that information, those insights up to farmers, for example, either on their desktop computer or on a mobile handheld device or something like that. As much as they are doing productive work in the field, planting is an example, they're also data acquisition and computational devices. 
How much of that is in-house at John Deere? How, how big is the team that is building your mobile apps? Is that something you outsource? Is that something you have internally? How have you structured the company to enable this kind of work? Yeah, so we do a, a significant amount of that work internally. You know, it might surprise you. We, we have more software development engineers today within Deere than we have mechanical design engineers. Uh, that's kind of mind-blowing for a company that's 80, 184 years old and has been steeped in mechanical product development, but that's that's the case. We do nearly all of our own internal uh, app development inside the four walls of Deere. Uh, that said, you know our, our data application for customers in the ag space, for example, is the operations center. Uh, we do utilize third parties. There's roughly 184 companies that have been connected to operations center through encrypted APIs that are writing applications against that data for the benefit of the customers, the, the farmers that uh, you know want to use those applications within their business. One of the reasons we're always debating what a computer is and isn't is that once you describe something as a computer, you inherit a bunch of expectations about how computers work. You inherit a bunch of problems about how computers work and don't work. You inherit a bunch of control, right? API access is a way of exercising control over an ecosystem or an economy. Have you shifted the way that John Deere thinks about its products in terms of, okay, we've got a bunch of new abilities now because we've computerized so much of a tractor, but we've also got a bunch more responsibility because we have a bunch more control. There's no doubt. Like we're having to think about things like, you know, security of data as an example that previously, you know, 30 years ago was not necessarily a topic of conversation. We didn't have competency in it. Uh, we've had to we've become competent in areas like that because of exactly the point you're making, that, that the product has become more computer-like uh, than conventional tractor-like over time. That leads to like huge questions, right? You, you mentioned security. John Deere, you have a big business in China. I was just looking at some of your recent numbers. It's a very big business in China. 30 years ago, you export a tractor to China. That's the end of that conversation. Now there's a huge conversation about cybersecurity, data sharing with companies like China, like down the line, a set of very complicated issues for the tractor company that 30 years ago wouldn't have any of those problems. How do you balance all those out? Yeah, you know, it's a different set of problems for sure and more complicated, you know, for geopolitical reasons. And in, in the case of China, as you mentioned, our effort has been, let's take security as an example. You know, we have gone through, I would say, the, the change that many technology companies have had to go through in the space of security, where it's no longer bolted on at the end, it's built in from the ground up. So it's the security by design approach. Uh, we've got folks embedded in development uh, organizations across the company that do nothing uh, every day other than get up and think about how to make the product more secure, make the data sets more secure, make sure that the, the data is being used for its intended purposes and, and only those. Uh, and that's that's a new skill, right? That's a skill that we didn't have in the organization 20 years ago, necessarily, that we've had to, to create and hire the necessary talent in order to develop that skill set within the company at the scale that we need to develop it at. Go through a very basic farming season with a John Deere combine and tractor. The farmer wakes up, they say, OK, I've got a field, I've got to plant some seeds, we've got to tend to them, eventually we've got to harvest some plants. What are the points at which data is collected? What are the points at which it's useful? And where does, where does the feedback loop come in? Yeah, I love this question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin it a little bit and not start with planting. I'm going to tell you that the next season for a farmer 
actually starts at harvest of the previous season, right? And that's where where the data uh, thread for the next season actually starts. And it starts when that combine is in the field, harvesting whatever it is, corn, soybeans, cotton, uh, you know, whatever. And the farmer is creating, while they're running the combine through the field, a data set that we call a yield map. It is a geospatially referenced because the, like these combines are running through the field on satellite guidance, right? We know where they're at at, at any point in time, latitude, longitude, and we know how much they're harvesting at that point in time. And so we create this three-dimensional map that is the, the yield across whatever field they happen to be in. That data is the inception for a winter's worth of work in the northern hemisphere that a farmer goes through to assess their yield and understand what changes they should make uh, in the next season that might optimize that yield even further, right? They might have areas within the field that they they go into and know they need to change seeding density or they need to change crop type or they need to change how much nutrients they provide in the next season. And all of those decisions are going through their head because they got to order seed, you know, in December, they have to order their nutrients in, in, in late winter. They're making those plans based upon that initial data set of harvest information. And then they get into the field in the spring, you know, to, to your point with a tractor and a planter, and that tractor and planter are taking the prescription that the farmer developed with the, the yield data that they took from the previous harvest. And they're using that prescription to apply changes to that field in real time, right, as they're going through the field with the, the existing data from the yield map and the, the, the data in real time that they're collecting with the tractor to modify things like seeding rate and modify things like fertilizer rate and all of those things in order to make sure that they're minimizing the inputs to the operation while at the same time working to maximize the output. And that data then is going into the cloud and they're referencing it. That track, for example, that the tractor and the planter took through the field is being used to inform the sprayer when the sprayer goes into the field after emergence and the crops come out of the ground. It's being used to inform that sprayer what the optimal path is to drive through the field in order to spray only what needs to be sprayed and no more uh, to damage the crop to the least amount possible, all in an effort to, to optimize that productivity at the end of the year to, to make that yield map that is the scorecard, uh, the report <laughs> card at the end of the year for the farmer to make that turn out to have a better grade. That's a lot of data. Who collects it? Is, that, is John Deere collecting it? Can I hire a third-party SaaS software company to manage that data for me? How does that part work? Yeah, great question. So I would say a, a significant amount of that data is collected on the fly while the machines are, are in the field. And it's collected, you know, in the case of deer machines by deer equipment running through the field. Uh, there are other companies that, that create the data and they can be imported into things like the Deer Operations Center uh, so that you have the data from whatever source that you wanted to collect it. I think the important thing there is historically it's been more difficult to get the data off the machine because of connectivity limitations into a, a database that you can actually do something with it. Today, uh, you know, the disproportionate number of machines in large agriculture are connected. They're connected through terrestrial cell networks. They're streaming data, you know, bi-directionally to the cloud and back from the cloud. And so that data connectivity infrastructure that's been built out over the last decade uh, has really enabled, um, you know, two-way communication and, and has taken sort of the friction out of getting the data off of a mobile piece of equipment. Uh, and so it's happening seamlessly for that operator. And, and that's a benefit because they can act on it then in more near real time, as opposed to having to wait for somebody to upload data uh, at some point in the future. So whose data is it? Is it it's the farmer's data? Is it John Deere's data? Is there a terms of service agreement for a, a combine? How does that work? 
Certainly in terms of service agreement, the, our, our position is pretty simple. It's, it's the farmer's data. They control it. So if they want to share it through uh, an API with somebody that is a trusted advisor from, from their perspective, they have the right to do that. Uh, if they don't want to share it, they don't have to do that. It is their data to control. Is it portable? Is it a CSV? I mean, when I say there are computer problems here, I'm like, can my tractor deliver me an Excel file? Like, yeah, it's cert- they certainly can export the data in in form factors that are convenient for them, and they do. They'll, you know, spreadsheet math is still routinely done on the farm, and they, <laughs> and they can utilize a spreadsheet to do to do some basic data analytics if they want. I would tell you though that that what's happening is that the amount of data that is being collected and, and curated and made available to them to draw insights from is so massive. While you can still use spreadsheets to manipulate some of it, it's just not tractable in all cases. And so, you know, that's that's why we're building functionality into things like the operations center to help do data analytics and serve up insights to growers. It's their data. They can choose to, to look at the insights or not, but we can serve those insights up to them because the data uh, and analysis part of this problem is becoming significantly larger because the data sets are so complex and large. Not to mention the fact that you've got more data coming in all the time. Different sensors are being applied. We can measure different things. You know, there's unique pieces of information that are coming in and, and routinely building to this overall ecosystems of, of data that they have at their disposal. We've talked a lot about the feedback loop of data with the machinery in particular. There's one really important component to this, which is the seeds. There are a lot of seed manufacturers out in the world. They want this data. They have GMO seeds. They can adjust the seeds to different locations. Where do they come into the mix? The data from our perspective is is the it's the farmer's data, right? They're the ones who are controlling the access to it. So if they want to share their data with with someone, they they are they have that ability to do it, and they, and they do today, right? They'll they'll share their yield map with whoever their local seed seed salesman is, right? And and try to optimize the seed variety for the next planting season in the spring. And so that data exists. It's not ours, so we're not at liberty to share it with seed companies and we don't. It has to come through the grower because it's their productivity data that they're, they're the ones that, that have the opportunity to share it. We don't. You do have a lot of data. Maybe you can't share it widely, but you can aggregate it. You must have a very unique view of climate change. Right. You must see where the foodways are moving, where different kinds of crops are succeeding and failing. What is your view of climate change? How, what is your perspective on it, given the amount of data that you're taking in? Yeah, it's a great question. The reality is for us that we're sort of hindered in answering that question by the recency of the data. Uh, so we have uh, you know, broad scale data acquisition from production agriculture has really only uh, a five to 10 year old phenomenon. Right. And so the data sets are getting richer. They're getting better. We uh, have the opportunity to see trends in that data across you know, the, the data sets that, that exist today. But I think it's too early. I don't think the data is mature enough yet for us to be able to draw any conclusions from a climate change perspective with respect to the data that we have. The other thing that I'll add is that the data intensity is not universal across the, the globe. Right. So if you think of climate change in a global perspective, we've got a lot of data for North America, a fair amount of data that gets taken by growers in, in Europe, uh, a little bit in, in South America. But it's not rich enough across the global agricultural footprint for us to be able to make you know, any sort of statements about how climate change is impacting it right now. Is that something you're interested in doing? Yeah, I think the data will eventually, you know, I couldn't predict when, but I think that the data will eventually 
be rich enough for insights to be drawn from it. It's just not there yet. Do you think about doing a fully EV tractor? Is that in your technology roadmap that you got to get rid of these diesel engines? Oh, you got to be interested in EVs right now. Like, yeah. And the answer is yes. Like whether it's a tractor or whether it's some other product in our product line, alternative forms of propulsion, alternative forms of power uh, are, are definitely something that we're thinking about. You know, we've We've done it in the past with, uh, I would say, hybrid solutions like a you know a diesel engine driving an electric generator, and then the rest of the the machine being electrified from a propulsion perspective. But we're just getting to the point now where battery technology, uh, lithium ion technology, is power dense enough for us to see it starting to creep in uh, to our portfolio, probably from the bottom up. You know, lower power density applications first before it gets into you know some of the very large production ag equipment that we've talked about today. What's the timeline to a fully EV combine, do you think? I think it'll be a long time for a combine. Like, you know, it's yeah, got, it's I, got, I picked the biggest thing I could. Basically. Yeah, it's got to run, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours per day. It's got a very short window to run in. Uh, you can't take all day to charge it. You know, those sorts, <laughs> those sorts of problems are, uh, they're not insurmountable. Uh, they're just not solved by anything that's on the roadmap today from a lithium ion perspective anyway. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'll ask Jamie what needs to happen to improve broadband for farmers. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant, and as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles, and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Okay, I'm back with Jamie Hinman. I'm going to make this comparison because you and I are talking two days after Apple had its developers conference. And Apple right now, right, I mean, famously, they sell a hardware, software, services, integrated solution. Do you think of... John Deere's equipment is integrated suites of hardware, software, and services, or is it a piece of hardware that spits off data and then maybe you can buy our services or maybe buy somebody else's services? It's a great question. I, I think it's most efficient when we think of it collectively as a system. 
uh, it doesn't have to be that way. And and the one of the differences I would say to an Apple comparison would be the life of the product, the the iron product in our case, the tractor or the combine is measured in decades, right? It may be in service for a very long time. Uh, and so we have to take that into account as we think about the technology apps that we put on top of it, right? Which have a much shorter shelf life. They're, you know, two, three, four, five years, and then they're obsolete and the next best thing has come along. And so we have to think about the discontinuity that occurs between product life cycles as a consequence of that. I do think it's most efficient to think of it altogether. It isn't always necessarily that way. There are lots of farmers that run multicolored fleets. It's not deer only, <laughs> right? And so we have to be able to provide an opportunity for them to get data off of whatever you know their product is into the environment that best enables them to make good decisions from it. Is that how you characterize the competition, multi, multi-colored fleets? Absolutely, yeah. I would love the world to be completely green, but uh, it, it's not quite that way. On my way to school every day in Wisconsin growing up, I drove by a case plant. And so they're red. Just for the listeners, John Deere is famously green. Case is red. International Harvester is yellow. Yep. Case is red. Deer is green. And then there's a, a rainbow of colors uh, outside of those two for sure. <laughs> Who are your biggest competitors? And, and are they adopting the same model as you? Is this like an iOS versus Android situation or is it widely different? Yeah, great, great question. You know, our traditional competitors, you know, in the ag space, no surprise, you mentioned one of them, Case New Holland's a great example, Agco would be another. I think everybody's headed down this path of precision agriculture is, you know, the term that's ubiquitous for where the industry's headed. And it's this idea of, uh, I'm going to paint a picture for you. It's this idea of uh, enabling each individual plant in production agriculture to be tended to by a master gardener, right? The master gardener is, is in this case, probably some AI that is enabling uh, a farmer to know exactly what that particular plant needs, when it needs it. And then our equipment provides them the capability of executing on that plan that that master gardener's created for that plant on a extremely large scale, right? You're talking about in the case of corn, for example, you know, 50,000 plants per acre, uh, so a master gardener taking care of 50,000 plants for every acre of corn. That's kind of where this is headed. And, and you can just kind of picture the data intensity of that, right? 200 million acres of corn ground times 50,000 plants per acre. Each one of those plants is creating data. And that's the enormity of, of the scale of production agriculture when you start to get to this plant by plant management basis. When you talk about the enormity of the data and the amount of computation I want to do, that's in tension with how long the equipment lasts. Mm -hmm. Are you upgrading the computers and the tractors every year? Or are you just trying to pull the data into your cloud where you can do the sort of intense computation you want to do? It's a combination of both, I would tell you. You know, there are components within the vehicles that do get upgraded uh, from time to time. You know, the displays and, and the servers that, that operate in the vehicles uh, do go through upgrade cycles uh, within ex the existing fleet. We are also, so there's enough appetite Eli, for technology in agriculture that we're also seeing older equipment get updated with new technology. Uh, so it's not uncommon today for um, you know a customer who's purchased a John Deere planter that might be 10 years old to want the latest technology on that planter. And instead of buying a new planter, uh, they might buy the upgrade kit for that planter that allows them to have the latest technology on the existing planter that they own. Uh, that sort of stuff is happening you know all the time across the industry. I would tell you, though, that, you know, what is maybe different now versus 10 years ago is the amount of, of computation that happens in the cloud. 
uh, to serve up, you know, this enormity of data in a in bite-sized forms and in digestible pieces that actually can can be acted upon for the grower. Very little of that is done onboard machines today. Most of that is done offboard. You mentioned connectivity earlier. We cover rural broadband very heavily. There's some real-time stuff, data collection happening here. But you're really talking at the end of a session, you've got a big asynchronous data set. You want to send it off somewhere, have some computation done to it, brought back to you so you can react to it, right? What is your relationship to the you know connectivity providers to the government that's trying to roll out this to the Biden administration, say, that's trying to roll out a broadband plan. Are you pushing, hey, to make the next generation our products, we need better networks? Or are you kind of happy with where things are now? Yeah, no, we're, we're pro-rural broadband and in particular, you know, newer technologies, 5G as an example, right? There's, and it's not just for agricultural purposes. Let's just be frank. You know, there's a ton of benefits that accrue to a society that's connected uh, with, you know, a sufficient network to do things like, you know, online schooling in particular coming through the pandemic that that we're in, in the midst of, and hopefully on the tail end of here, I think that just highlighted the use cases for connectivity in, in rural locations. Agriculture is but one of those, but there's some really cool uh, feature unlocks that better connectivity, both in terms of coverage and in terms of, you know, bandwidth and latency uh, provide in agriculture. I'll give you an example. You know, you think of 5G and uh, the ability to get to incredibly low latency uh, numbers. It allows us to do some things from a computational perspective on the edge of the network that today we, we don't have the capability to do. We either do it on board the machine or we don't do it at all. And so things like serving up real-time location of where a farmer's combine is, uh, instead of having that to route that data all the way to the cloud and then back to a handheld device that the farmer might have, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could do that that math on the edge and just ping tower to tower and serve it back down and do it really, really quick? Um, those are the sorts of use cases that that open up when you get to, to talking about not just connectivity rurally, but 5G specifically, that are pretty exciting. Are the networks in place to do all the things you want to do? Globally, the answer is no. Uh, you know, within the, the U.S. Uh, Canadian market, uh, coverage is it improves every day. You know, there are towers that are going up every day and we are working with uh, you know, our terrestrial cell coverage partners across the globe to expand coverage. Uh, and they're responding. They, they see generally the need in particular with respect to agriculture for rural connectivity. They understand the power that it can provide, the efficiency that it can drive into food production globally. Uh, and so they're incented, I think, to do that. And they've been good partners in the space. That said, they recognize that there are still gaps and there's still you know, a lot of ground to cover, literally, in some cases with connectivity solutions in rural locations. You mentioned your, your partners. I mean, the, the parallels to a smartphone here are kind of intense, right? I mean, do you have different chipsets for AT&T and Verizon? Can you activate your AT&T plan right from the screen in the, in the tractor? How does that work? So AT&T is our dominant partner in, in North America. You know, that that is our, our go-to primarily from a coverage perspective. They're, they're the partner that we've chosen that, that I think serves our customers the best in the most locations. Do you get free HBO Max if you sign a combine up for AT&T? <laughs> yeah, no, unfortunately, no. <laughs> so they're putting it everywhere. You're not, you have no idea. For sure. I look at the the broadband gap everywhere. You mentioned schooling. We cover these very deep consumer needs. On the flip side, right, you need to run a lot of fiber to make 5G work, especially with the low latency that you're talking about. You can't you can't have too many nodes in the way, right? Or do you support millimeter wave 5G on a farm? It, that seems unreasonable for you, right? It is something we've looked at. Like it, it's intriguing. Uh, how you scale it is the question, right? That's that's. Uh, I, I think if, if we could crack that nut, it would be really interesting. 
Yeah, and just for, you know, for listeners, millimeter wave. If you're standing on the right street corner in New York City, you get gigabit speeds to a phone. You cross the street and it goes away. Yep, that does not seem tenable on a on a farm. That's right. Not to cover the broad acreage, right? But you can envision a case where potentially when you come, not all data needs to be transmitted at the same rate, right? So when you come into range of millimeter wave, you dump a bunch of data all at once, right? And and then when you're out of range, you're still collecting data and transmitting it slower, perhaps. But having the ability to have millimeter wave type of bandwidth uh, is pretty intriguing for being able to take uh, opportunistic advantage of it when it's available. What's something you want to do that the network isn't there for you to do yet? You know, I think that the biggest piece is just it's a coverage answer you know, from my perspective. So we, we buffer, intentionally buffer data on the vehicle in places where we don't have great coverage in order to wait until we do have coverage or that machine has coverage in order to send the data. But the reality is that means that a, a grower is waiting in some cases 30 minutes uh, or an hour uh, until the data is is synced up in the cloud and something actionable is done with it and it's back down to them. And, and by that point in time, the decision's already made, right? It's not useful uh, It's because it's time sensitive. So I think that's probably the biggest gap that we have today. It's not universal. It happens in pockets and in geographies, but where it happens, the need is real. And those growers don't benefit as much as growers that do have you know areas of, of good coverage. Is that going as fast as you'd like? Is that a place where you're saying to the Biden administration, whoever it might be, hey, we're, we're missing out on opportunities because there isn't the networks we need go faster? Yeah, it, it is not going as fast as we would like, you know, full stop. Um, we should be moving faster in that space. And, and maybe, you know, just to uh, to tease the thought out a little bit, maybe it's not just terrestrial cell. Maybe it's Starlink. Maybe it's, you know, a satellite-based uh, type of infrastructure that, that provides that coverage for us in the future. Uh, but it's certainly not moving at a pace that's rapid enough for us, given the data, the appetite for data that growers have and what they've seen as an ability for that data to significantly optimize their operations. For listeners, Starlink is the SpaceX project to deliver broadband using a huge constellation of satellites. Have you talked to the Starlink folks? Yeah, we have. How's that going? It's super interesting. Uh, you know, it's it's an intriguing idea. You know, the, the question for us is is a mobile one, right? All of our devices are mobile. Tractors are driving around a field. Combines are driving around a field. You get into questions around what does the, the receiver need to look like in order to make that work? It's an interesting idea at this point. I'm ever the optimist, glass half full sort of person. I think it's uh, conceivable that, you know, in the not too distant future, that could be a very viable option for some of these locations that are underserved with terrestrial connectivity today. Walk me through the, just the pricing model of let's say, let's call it a tractor, right? I mean, these things are very expensive. They're hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yep. What is the recurring cost for an AT&T plan necessary to run that tractor? What is the recurring cost for your data services that you provide? How does that all break down? Yeah, so our, our data services are free today, uh, interestingly enough. Free in the sense that the hosting of the data in the cloud and the serving up of that data through Operation Center, if you buy a piece of connected deer equipment, that service is part of your purchase. Uh, I'll just put it that way. The the recurring expense on the consumer side of things uh, for the connectivity is not unlike what you would experience for a cell phone plan. Uh, it, it's pretty similar. The difference is it's for, for large growers, it's not just a single cell phone, right? They, they might yeah. have 10, 15, 20 devices that are all connected. Uh, and, and so we do what we can to make sure that that's that, that the overhead associated with with all of those different connected devices is minimized, but it's not unlike what you'd experience with, uh, you know, an iPhone or, a, or an Android device. Do you have 
large growers and pockets where the, the connectivity is just so bad, they've had to resort to other means. Yeah, so uh, we have a multitude of ways of getting data off of mobile equipment. Uh, cell is, is but one. Uh, we're also able to take it off with Wi-Fi uh, if you can you can find a hotspot that you can connect to. Growers also uh, routinely use a USB stick. <laughs> and when all else fails, that works uh, regardless. So uh, we make it possible, no matter what their connectivity situation is, to get the data off. But to the point we already talked about, you know, the less friction you've got in that system to get the data off, the the more data you end up pushing. The more data you push, the more insights you can you can generate. The more insights you generate, the more optimal your operation is. So to the extent that you don't have, you know, cell connectivity, we do see the intensity of the data usage. Just it, it tracks with connectivity. So if your cloud services are, are free with the purchase of a connected track, is that built into the price or the lease agreement of the tractor for you yep. on your P&L? You're just saying we're giving this away for free, but we're baking it into the price. Yep. Can you buy a tractor without that stuff for cheaper? You can buy products that aren't connected, that do not have a, a telematics gateway, the cell connection. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it is uncommon, especially in large <laughs> ag. Like it, and I would hesitate to throw a number at you at, at what the, the take rate is, but it's, it's standard equipment in all of our large agricultural products. Uh, that said, uh, you can still get it w- without that uh, if you need to. How long until these products just don't have steering wheels and seats and serious radios in them, right? Like how long until you have a fully autonomous farm? I love that question. Fully autonomous farm, got to draw some boundaries around that, right? In order to make it digestible, I think. Um, I think we could have fully autonomous tractors in low single digit years. I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll leave it a little bit gray just to let the mind wander a little bit. Taking the cab completely off the tractor, I think is a ways away only because the tractor gets used for lots of things that it may not uh, be programmed for from an autonomous perspective to do, right? It's sort of the Swiss army knife uh, in a farm environment. But that operator-less operation in, say, fall tillage or spring planting, we're right on the doorstep of that. We're knocking on the door being able to do it. It's due to some really interesting technology that's come together sort of all in one place at one time. Uh, you know, it's it's the confluence of high capability compute onboard machines. So we're putting, you know, GPUs on machines today to do vision processing that uh, would blow your mind. NVIDIA Xavier uh, GPUs are not just for the gaming community or, or the, the autonomous car community. They're happening on tractors and and, and sprayers and, and things, too. So, so that's one stream of technology that's coming together with uh, advanced algorithms, right? Machine learning, reinforcement learning. Uh, convolutional neural networks, all of that going into being able to, you know, sort of mimic the human sight vision capability from a mechanical and computational perspective. So that's come together to give us the ability to start seriously considering taking an operator out of the cab of the tractor. One of the things that that is different, though, for agriculture versus maybe the the on-highway community, the, the autonomous cars, is that tractors don't just go from point A to point B, right? Their mission in life is not just to transport it's to do productive work, right? They're they're pulling a tillage tool behind them or pulling a planter behind them, planting seed. And so we not only have to be able to automate the driving of the tractor, but we have to automate the, the function that it's doing as well and make sure that it's doing a great job of doing the tillage operation that normally the farmer would be observing, right, in the cab mm-hmm. of the tractor. Now we have to do that and be able to, to ascertain whether or not that job quality that's happening as a consequence of the tractor going through the field is meeting the requirements or not. What's the challenge there? 
You know, I think it's the the variety of jobs that that in this case, let's take the tractor again that they do. Uh, you know, so it's not only is it doing the tillage right with this particular tillage tool, but a farmer might use three or four different tillage tools in their operation. They're all different use cases. They all require different artificial intelligence models to be trained and to be validated. And so, scaling out across all of those different uh, conceivable operations, I think, is the the biggest challenge. You mentioned GPUs. GPUs are hard to get right now. Everything's hard to get right now. Yeah. How is the chip shortage affecting you? Yeah, it's impacting us weekly. I'm in conversations with semiconductor manufacturers trying to get you know the parts that we need, and uh, it, it is an ongoing battle. Uh, we had thought you know probably six or seven months ago, like everybody else, that it would be relatively short term, but I think we're into this uh, for the next 12 to 18 months. 12 to 18 months. I, I do. Yeah, I think I think we'll come out of it as capacity comes online, uh, but it's going to take it's going to take a little while before that happens. I've talked to a few people about the chip shortage now. The best consensus I've gotten is the problem isn't at the state of the art. The problem is older process nodes, five, 10 year old technology. Is that where the problem is for y'all as well? Or are you thinking about moving beyond that? I guess I'd answer that question by it's most acute with older tech. So we've got, you know, 16 bit chipsets that we're still working with on, on legacy controllers that are a pain point. But that said, we've also got some really recent modern stuff that is also a pain point. I, I would tell you, I, I was where your head was at three months ago. And then in the three months since then, we felt the pain everywhere. When you say 18 months from now, is that you think there's going to be more supply or you think the demand is going to tail off? Supply is certainly coming online. Like, you know, semiconductor industry is doing the right thing. They're trying to bring uh, capacity online to meet the demand. I would argue it's just a classic bullwhip type of effect that's happened in the marketplace. So I, I think that will happen. I think there's some certainly some behavior in the industry at the moment around what the demand side is that's make, made it hard for semiconductor manufacturers to understand what real demand is because there's a, a panic situation in, in some respects in the marketplace at the moment. That said, it, it should, I, I think it's clear, there's only one direction that semiconductor volume is going and it's going up, right? Everything is going to demand it moving forward and demand more of it. So, you know, I think once we get worked through the next 12 to 18 months and, and uh, get worked through this sort of immediate near-term issue, uh, the industry, the semiconductor industry is going to have a better handle on things, but capacity has to go up in order to meet the demand. There's no doubt about it. A lot of that demand is real. Are you thinking, man, I got these 16 bit systems. We got to just re-architect things to be more modular, to be more modern, faster. Or are you saying uh, supply will catch up? No, no, very much the, the former. Like I would say two things. One, more prevalent in supply for sure. Uh, and then the second one is easier to change when we need to change. There, there's some tech debt that we're continuing to, to battle against and pay off over time. And, and uh, it's times like these when it rises to the surface and you wish you'd made decisions a little bit differently, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago that we didn't. We're going to take one more break. But when we return, Jamie and I will get deep into right to repair. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, 
Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Okay, we're back with Decoder. I think this brings me to my next set of questions. And I will admit to you that my wife's entire family is farmers. Cool. My father-in-law, her cousins, farmers up and down, bleed green. A lot of John Deere hats in my family. I texted them all and said, what do you want to know? All of them came back and said, right to repair. That's what they asked me to ask you about. You know, I, I set up this whole conversation to talk about these things are computers. We understand the problems of computers. It is notable to me that John Deere and Apple have the same effective position on right to repair, which is we would prefer if you didn't do it and you let us do it. But there's a lot of pushback. There's right to repair bills in ever growing number of states. How do you see that playing out right now? People want to repair their tractors. It is getting harder and harder to do it because they're computers and you control the parts. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's it's a, a complex topic, first and foremost. And we've got a I've got a lot of time for the topic because it's going to take all of us, you know, I think working through it. I think the the first thing I would tell you is that, you know, we have and and remain committed to enabling customers to repair, fix their pro- the products that they buy. And so the right to repair idea for us, you know, it it the reality is that 98% of the repairs that customers want to do on products, John Deere products today, they can do. Uh, there's nothing that prohibits them from doing them. Their, their wrenches are the same size as our wrenches, right? Um, that all works. If somebody wants to go repair a diesel engine in a tractor, they can tear it down and fix it. We'll make, we make the service manuals available. We make the parts available. We make the how-to available for them to, to tear it down to the ground and, and build it back up again. I would push back on that. That is not really what I've heard, right? That a sensor goes off, the tractor goes into what people call limp mode, you got to bring it to a service center. They need a John Deere certified laptop to pull the codes and actually do that work. Yeah. So the diagnostic trouble codes are, are, are pushed out onto the display. The customer can see what those diagnostic trouble codes are. They, they may not understand or be able to connect what that trouble, that, that sensor issue is, right, with a root cause, right? There may be an underlying root cause that's not immediately obvious to, to the customer based upon the fault code. Uh, but but the information, the, the fault code information is there. There is expertise that exists within, you know, the John Deere dealer environment because they've seen those issues over time that allows them to understand what the probable cause is for that that particular issue. That said, the sensor, anybody can go buy the sensor, anybody can go replace it. You know, that that's just uh, a reality. There is, though, this, you know, 2%-ish uh, of, of the repairs that occur on equipment today involve software, right? And, and to your point, they're, they're computer environments that are driving around on wheels. And so there is a software component to them. Where we differ 
uh, with the, the right to repair folks is that that software in many cases it's regulated. So let's take the diesel engine example. We are required uh, because it's a regulated emissions environment to make sure that diesel engine performs at a certain emission output, nitrous oxide, particle matter, et cetera, and so on. Modifying software changes that, right? It, it changes the, the output characteristics of the emissions of, of the engine, and that's a regulated device. So we're pretty, we're, we're pretty sensitive to changes that would impact that. Uh, and disproportionately, those are software changes, like going in and changing governor gain scheduling, for example, on a diesel engine would have a negative consequence on the emissions that that engine produces. The same argument would apply in, you know, brake by wire, steer by wire. Do you really want uh, a tractor going down the road with software on it that has been modified for steering or modified for braking in some way that might have a consequence that, that nobody thought of, right? Uh, we know the rigorous nature of testing that we go through in order to push software uh, out into a production landscape. Uh, we want to make sure that that product is as safe and reliable and uh, performs to the intended expectations of the, the regulatory environment that we operate in to the extent that we can. Yeah, but, pe- but people are doing it anyway. I mean, that's like the real issue here, right? It's again, and these are these are computer problems. This is what I hear from Apple about repairing your own iPhone. Right. Here's a device with all your data on it that's on the network. Do you really want to run unsupported software on it? The valence of the debate feels the same to me. At the same time, though, it's is it their tractor? Is it your tractor? Like, I should be allowed to run whatever software I want on my computer, right? I think the difference with the Apple argument is that the the iPhone isn't driving down the road at, at 20 miles an hour, you know, with oncoming traffic coming at it. There's a, a seriousness of the change that you could make to a product, to your point, you know, before these things are large, they cost a lot of money. It's a 40,000 pound tractor going down the road at 20 miles an hour. Do you really want to expose untested, unplanned, unknown uh, introductions of software into a product like that that's out in the public landscape? But they were doing it mechanically before. I mean, that's like the real issue here, right? The com- making it computerized allows you to control that behavior in a way that on a purely mechanical tractor, I know there are a lot of farmers who did dumb stuff with their mechanical tractors, and that was just for sure part of the ecosystem. I grew up on one of those, right? And, yeah, and, right? and I think the difference, Eli, there is that it was the system is so much more complicated today, uh, in part because of software, that it's not always evident immediately if I make a change here, what it's going to produce over there, right? When it was all mechanical, I knew that if I changed, you know, the size of the tires or the steering linkage geometry, what was going to happen, right? I could, I could physically see it and the system was self-contained because it was a mechanical only system. I think when we're talking about a modern piece of equipment and the complexity of the system, it's the ripple effect. You don't know what a change that you make over here is going to impact over there any longer. It's not intuitively obvious to somebody who would who would make a change in isolation to software, for example, over here. It, it is a tremendously complex problem. It's one that we've got, you know, a, a tremendously large organization that's responsible for understanding that complete system and making sure that when the product is produced, that it is reliable and it is safe and it does meet emissions and all of those things. But when I say they're doing it anyway, I mean, I look at some of the coverage. There are farmers who are downloading software of unknown provenance that can hack around some of the restrictions. Some of that software appears to be coming from uh, groups in the Ukraine. Like they're now using other software to get around the restrictions that in some cases could make it even worse, could lead to another unintended consequence. 
Whereas providing the opportunities or making that more uh, official might actually solve some of those problems in a more straightforward way. Yeah, you know, I think we've, we've taken steps to try to uh, to help, right? One of those is, you know, customer service advice. Service advisor is the John Deere um, software that, that a dealership would use in order to, to diagnose and, and troubleshoot equipment. We've made available the, the customer version of service advisor as well uh, in order to provide some of the, the ability for them to, to have insights into, to your point about fault codes before, insights into uh, what are those issues? You know, what can I learn about them as a customer? How might I go about fixing them? There have been efforts underway in order to to try to to bridge some of that gap to the extent possible. Uh, we are, though, not in a position where we would ever condone or support third party software being put on products uh, of ours because we just don't know what the, the the consequences of that's going to be. Right? It's not something that we've tested. Uh, we don't know what it might make the equipment do or not do. Uh, we don't know what the long term impacts of that are. Make a comparison to, I don't know, cars. I feel like a lot of people listening to the show uh, own a car. I don't know, I've got a pickup truck. I can go buy a device that will upload a new tune to my Ford pickup truck's engine. Is that something you can do to a John Deere tractor? There are third-party outfits that will do exactly that to a John Deere engine. Yep. But can you do that yourself? As a consumer? Yeah. I suspect if if you had the right technical knowledge... Uh, you could pop, probably figure out a way to do it yourself. I mean, if, if a third-party company's figured it out, there, there is a, a way for a consumer to do it too. Where's the line? Where do you, where do you think your control of the, the system ends and the consumer's control begins? And I ask that because I think that might be the most important question in computing right now. Just broadly across every kind of computer in our lives, at some point, the manufacturer is like, I'm still right here with you and I'm putting a line in front of you. Where's your line? We talked about the corner cases, the use cases, I think, that for us are, are are the lines. They're around the regulated environment from an emissions perspective. We've got a responsibility when we sell a piece of equipment to make sure that it's meeting the, the regulatory environment that we sold it into. Uh, and then I think the other one is in and around safety critical systems, uh, you know, things that, that can impact others in the environment. Uh, that again, in in a, in a regulated fashion, we have a responsibility to to produce a product that meets the requirements that the regulatory environment requires. Not only that, but I think there's a societal responsibility, frankly, that that we make sure that the product is as safe as it can be for as long as it can be uh, in 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 operation. And and those are those are where I think this topic of repairability sort of we spend a lot of time talking about what amounts to a very small part of the repair of a product right I, I, you know the statistics are real 98% of our our our, ish, our repairs that happen on a product can be done by a, a customer today so we're we're talking about a very small number of them but they tend to be around those sort of sensitive use cases uh, regulatory and safety right you're getting pushback from me but let me ask you about two other signals that you might be perceiving one we live in a very polarized political climate. Sure. But right to repair legislation is very bipartisan, right? You're talking about, you know, big commercial operations in a lot of states. I mean, it's America, it's farmers, it's apple pie and corn farms, right? They have a lot of political weight and they're able to make a very bipartisan push, which is pretty rare in this country right now. Is that a signal you see is, oh man, if we don't get this right, the government is coming for our products? Yeah, I, I think the government's certainly one voice in this, and it's stemming from you know feedback from uh, some customers. You know, I think obviously you, you've done your own bit of work across the the farmers in your family, so it is a topic that is being discussed for sure. I, and and we're all in favor of that discussion, by the way. I think the 
what we want to make sure of is that it's an objective discussion. Like there are ramifications uh, across all dimensions of this, right? We want to make sure that those are well understood because it's such an important topic uh, and has significant enough consequences that we want to make sure we get it right. Um, the unintended consequences of this are not small, right? And and they they will impact the industry, uh, some of them in a negative way. Uh, and, and so we just want to make sure that the discussion is objective. The other signal I would ask you about is the prices of pre-computer tractors are skyrocketing. Maybe you, you see that a different way, but I'm looking at some coverage that says old tractors, pre-1990 tractors are selling for double what they were a year or two ago. Just incredible price hikes on these old tractors. And the demand is there because people don't want computers in the tractors. Is that a market signal to you that you, you should change the way your products work? Or are you saying, well, eventually those tractors will die and you won't have a choice except to buy one of the new products? You know, I think the, the benefits that accrue from technology are significant enough that, you know, consumers and, and we see this happening with the, the consumer vote is, is by dollar, right, by, by what they purchase. Uh, consumers are, are continuing to purchase higher levels of technology as we go on. So while, yes, I, the demand for older tractors has gone up, in part, it's because the demand for tractors has gone up completely. Our own technology solutions, we've seen upticks in, in take rates year over year over year over year. So if people were averse to the technology, I don't think you'd see that, right? The, the, at some point, we have to recognize that the benefits that technology are bringing outweigh the downsides of the technology also, right? And, and I think that's just part of the technology adoption curve that we're all on. I, I feel like the thesis of this conversation is, yep, that's a computer problem. Yeah, for sure. That's the same conversation we have around around smartphones. Yeah. The difference for me is, okay, I get it with smartphones, for example. Everyone has them in their pocket. They collect all this personal data. You maybe want a gatekeeper there because you don't have a sophisticated user base. You have a mass consumer user base. Your customers are very self-interested commercial customers. Yep. Do you think you have a different kind of responsibility than... I don't know, the Xbox Live team has to the Xbox Live community. In terms of data? In terms of data, in terms of control, in terms of relinquishing control of the product once it's sold. You know, it, it certainly is a different market. It's a different customer base. It's a different clientele. To your point, they are dependent upon the product for their livelihood, right? And so we do everything we can to make sure that product is reliable. It produces when it needs to produce in order to make sure that their businesses are, are productive and, and sustainable. Um, I, I do think the biggest difference from the consumer market that you referenced to our market is the technology lifecycle uh, that we're on. You, you already brought it up, right? You brought up tractors that are 20 years old that don't have a ton of, of computers on board versus what we have today. But what we have today is significantly more efficient than what we had 20 years ago. But the tractors that you referenced are still in market. People are still using them. They're still putting them to work, uh, productive work. Uh, in fact, on, on you know, the family farm and in my family, they're still being used for productive work. And I think that's what's different between the, the consumer market and, and the, the ag market. We don't have a disposable product like you don't just pick it up and throw it away. So we have to be able to plan for that technology use across decades as opposed to, to maybe, you know, single digit years. In terms of the benefits of technology and selling that through, one of the other questions I got from the folks in my family was about what the next thing that technology can enable. So here's a question. It seems like the equipment can't physically get much bigger. The next thing to tackle is speed, making them faster for increased productivity. Is that how you think about selling the benefits of technology? Okay, we made 
Now the combine is as big as it can be, and it, it's efficient at, at, at this massive scale. Now we're going to make it more efficient in terms of speed. Yeah, I think, and, and you've seen the industry trend that way. You look at planting as a great example. Ten years ago, we planted at three miles an hour. Uh, today, we plant at 10 miles an hour. And and what enabled that was technology. It was uh, electric motors on row units that can uh, react really, really quickly, that are highly controllable and can place seed really, really accurately, right? I think that's the trend, right? If, if And Wisconsin's a great place to talk about it, right? Whether if it's a, a row crop farm, there's a, a small window in the spring, a couple of weeks where it's optimal to get those crops in the ground, right? And so it's an insurance policy to be able to go faster. The weather may not be great, for both of those weeks that you've got that are optimal planting weeks. And so you may only have three days or four days in that 10 day window in order to plant all your crops. And speed is one way to make sure that that happens. Size, right? The width of the machine is the other. I would agree that we've gotten to the point where there's very little opportunity left in going bigger. And so going faster, and I would argue going more intelligently, right? Is the the way that you improve productivity in the future. So we've talked about a huge set of responsibilities, everything from the physical mechanical design of the machinery to building cloud services to geopolitics. What is your decision making process? What's your framework for how you make decisions? Yeah, I think at the root of it, we try to drive everything back to a customer and what we can do to make that customer more productive and more sustainable. And and that helps us sort of triage of all the great ideas that are out there, all the things that we could work on. What are the things that, that can move the needle for a customer in their operation as much as possible? And I think that grounding in the customer and the customer's business is important because fundamentally, you know, our business is dependent upon the farmer's business. If the farmer does well, we do well. If the farmer doesn't do well, we don't do well. We're intertwined. There's, there's a, you know, a, a connection there that you, you, you can't and shouldn't separate. Driving our decision-making process towards having an intimate knowledge of the customer's business and what we can do to make their business better uh, sort of frames everything we do. What's next for John Deere? What is the short-term future precision farming? And I don't know, give me a, a five-year prediction. Yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited about what we're calling, you know, Sense and Act, right? See and Spray is, is the first uh, down payment on that. It's the ability to create in software and, and through electronic and mechanical devices, the human sense of sight. Uh, and then act on it, right? So we're separating, in this case, weeds from useful crop, and we're only spraying the weeds. You know, that, that reduces herbicide use within a field. It reduces the cost for the farmer uh, input cost into their operation. It's just, it's a win-win-win. And it is, uh, you know, step one in this Sense and Act trajectory or Sense and Act runway that we're on. Uh, there's a lot more opportunity for us in agriculture to do more sensing and acting uh, and and doing that in an optimal way so that we're not sort of painting the same picture across a complete field, but doing it more prescriptively uh, and acting more prescriptively in areas of a field that demand different things, right? I think that sense and act type of, of vision is, is the roadmap that we're on. There's a ton of opportunity in there. It is technology intensive because you're talking sensors, you're talking compute, and you're talking acting with precision. All of those things require fundamental shifts in technology from where we're at today. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for being on Decoder. It was really fun to talk to you. We'll have you back soon. Likewise. It was good to be here. Thank you again to Jamie Hinman for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. 
If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.